The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are back on our program of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have taken a little break here over the past uh, two episodes, and what we are doing is since we have enhanced our social networking capability, and we sort of really want to get into the flow of 21st century feedback and social media. We have uh, taken the results of a poll just now in which we are actually asking and canvassing the, li- the re- listenership to let us know what they want to hear in our program. What we've done so far in this uh, particular venue is we have had a session last week where we actually got some questions from the listenership and this week we tried to get a little more systematic and scientific and we set up a poll with about 10 questions that we released to what I'm very happy to say is an expanding listenership and uh, we got quite a number of responses we got 170 responses between yesterday and today and um, I would like to share the results of that with you. I have to admit that uh, these results are very surprising in some ways and, and, and a little bit expected in others. And I will go over that and I will tell you what I think is surprising and what I think is sort of expected. But this is the result of the polls. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the percentages of listeners that were offered the option of what of a, a series of particular topics that uh, – were laid out in front of them to select what they thought was uh, in order of decreasing priority the the most favorite or the optimal topics that they wanted to hear about. So in sequential order from greatest to lowest, the highest ranking topic that people were interested in is the archaeology of ancient civilizations, which pulled in fully 25% of our sample of 170 The second highest was human origins and evolution, which represents 18%. The third one, this is quite quite interesting, is the role of archaeology in contemporary society. That pulled in 11%. Uh, Archaeology as a career track came in fourth at 10%. 
uh, archaeology and forensics, which is a topic that we have tried to explore on several occasions and will continue to do, pulled in 8%. 8%. And the Bible and archaeology pulled in 6%. And finally, there were a variety of different archaeological themes, about 10 in all, that uh, pulled in the balance of approximately 20%. And these would include archaeology and the law, early maritime peopling of the Americas, archaeology and absolute chronology, household archaeology, the business of archaeology, archaeology of death, that's an interesting topic, astroarchaeology, which uh, a couple of listeners just sort of voluntarily put in as a type topic of interest, maritime archaeology and harbor archaeology worldwide, archaeology of identity, that's uh, sort of a more esoteric theme, Arctic archaeology, and finally, the archaeology of architecture. Now, what I take away from this is um, sort of a, a, a call back and sort of a regrouping to going into standard venues for archaeology, what archaeology has always been about. And that is, in fact, the archaeology of ancient civilizations, Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, China, uh, Aztecs, Mesoamerica, and the Incan Peru. These apparently, and not surprisingly, but I, I, I was a little bit uh, at least intrigued by, by the extent of which these old traditional mainstays of archaeological research still hold so much attention uh, in the public eye especially the general public eye, so that had amounted to 25%. And the second item, which followed not far behind, uh, is human origins and evolution, which pulled in fully 18% of the listenership, and, and that's a bit intriguing. Be- between the two of them, basically, they're pulling in nearly half of the audience. And the intriguing thing about all of this is that uh, we have only scratched the surface of the archaeology of ancient civilizations and we have sort of uh, left it largely in, in the New World. We've talked about the uh, Mississippian cultures in the Midwestern United States and we've talked about the Southwestern urban cultures in, 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 in uh, areas like Mesoferdi and, and Chaco Canyon. And these, not surprisingly, pulled in a lot of listenership uh, but we haven't really touched on anything old world, specifically Egypt. We haven't touched Mesopotamia. We haven't done the Indus Valley, which uh, for me is probably a little bit unusual because it's an area in which I do a fair amount of work. And so those shows and those topics will obviously be at the forefront of what we're planning to do because obviously the listenership remains very, very intrigued by this. And, and the topic that we did not really, really scratch very heavily we had one program that, that marginally got involved with this, was Human Origins and Evolution. And um, that is a topic that we will do a number of programs on. Obviously, uh, the impetus for that is bolstered by, by the results of the survey. Everybody wants to know about this. The advances in DNA and the tremendous uh, order of, order, order of almost quantum leaps that we have in understanding the pathways of dispersals of early people has become a very, very major topic. And again, the research in this field is skyrocketing. And uh, even the lessons that I learned as a student oh, 20, 20, 30 years ago, th- those almost have to be discarded in light of the huge leaps that we've made in this form of research. I'm a little bit surprised uh, by some of these uh, results. I would have expected that archaeology and the law 
which only managed to get uh, a, a, a small percentage, less than less than five. That didn't do very well. Uh, surprisingly, the Bible and archaeology only got 6%. Archaeology and forensics, which you, you think would have really gleaned a tremendous amount of support because of all of the TV shows that deal with such things as uh, crime solving and the incredible advances in technology and DNA uh, patterning that that our brain brought to, to bear on such issues as, as murder, murder and disaster crimes and large-scale catastrophes. Um, this is a topic that apparently has pulled the general public in tremendously. You look at shows like CSI uh, in its various forms, Las Vegas, Miami, New York, and those shows do extremely well, and yet our Internet audience is not overly taken by that. Archaeology as a career track has pulled in a, a fair number of, of people. Uh, it's 10%. And uh, the role of archaeology in contemporary society, which is really one of the underlying themes that I'm trying to deal with, also put, pulls in 11%. That's deceptive, I think, to some degree. I think uh, between the two, um, career track and the role of archaeology in contemporary society, and if we bring in other issues related to the contemporary uh, aspect of archaeology, we'll probably combine them and we would probably get closer to 30%. But nevertheless... The overwhelming proportion of interest remains in ancient civilizations and in human origins. And uh, clearly that points to a need for us to get more and more into these domains, and uh, we're going to do that. Um, I appreciate the listenership being very, very responsive. And again, uh, we started this this particular survey yesterday and uh, the input was really really quite impressive I'm very very pleased by it and uh, I would encourage you to get on our Twitter page and to get on our uh, Facebook uh, page as well and please uh, don't hesitate to provide your input because I think that um, we will certainly pay attention to it and we will very definitely try to address these themes going forward um, the other points that, that I think are, are really interesting is that uh, there's tremendous diversity in the, in the public and we really sort of cannot put a handle on who our audience is. I mean, obviously there are people who are interested in, 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 in the, the traditional archaeological topics as I talked about, but uh, at some point I'm going to want to figure out the demographics of all of that, what uh, what geographic regions of the country are involved here, what age groups are involved here, and uh, I would just really like to get a handle on that. I did not put in uh, Hollywood as uh, Hollywood and archaeology as a theme. You may recall that we discussed that very early on, and that, I think, was the motivation for a tremendous amount of interest in archaeology in the 1980s, and uh, those of us who are still involved in, in training archaeologists are constantly being reminded that uh, one of the stimuli that has brought up uh, students, uh, undergraduates, as well as graduate students, I might add, actually even including high school students, is uh, the intrigue of films like Indiana Jones and, to a lesser degree, Tomb Raider, to uh, to the uh, interest of, of of students and as well as promoting scientific research 
in in a lot of ways. It's, I think you, you sort of get captivated by the mystique and and and, and by the uh, the glory of it, if you will. But by and large, I think we're seeing that students who get lured in by those themes and and who isn't who isn't uh, drawn in by glamour, eventually they settle down and they find that the actual science and the actual detective work that's involved in archaeology on on a tremendously large scale is what brings them in and sustains their interest. So it's a good thing. I, we talked about this in an earlier program with a couple of, of scholars and a couple of professors who are very familiar with this trend. And I, I think that whatever stimulates the mind and what gets it working is is something that, that is, is uh, nothing but good. I mean, it promotes this profession it allows us to make tremendous technological advances because we're bringing in some of the really good minds. And, and in this connection, again, I'm somewhat surprised that the forensics issue did not draw in more people. And I, I would, again, reiterate as well that I'd like to see what the demographics are on this because I would have thought that forensics and archaeology as well as archaeology in the contemporary world would have been really, really important. But I'm wrong. There's no question that um, early civilization is something that we're going to have to put a focus on. And the human origins issue, uh, we're going to get into, in, as I indicated, this is a field that has witnessed so much change. And apparently, if you go to, if you go to, if you live in a big city and, and uh, you have a sophisticated museum there, you will almost invariably find uh, good displays and a very informative displays showing the advances that have been made in hominid evolution and in our knowledge of the breaking off of the uh, evolutionary tree and how, how it works and, and what the systematics of evolution and uh, that kind of development uh, as far as, as the human forms is concerned has progressed over the past 15 or 20 years. So um, at this point, uh, we're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to go into some more specifics. We're going to answer some very intriguing questions that the listenership brought to our attention. Uh, some of them are unusual. I think they're very riveting. They are uh, a little bit off in some ways, a little bit unusual, let me say. And I think uh, nevertheless, that since people have gone to the trouble to ask these questions, we ought to get into them. We'll be back after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacey Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacey Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacey's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacey Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
all about action. Touchdown! Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back. This is Joe Shilton Ryan, and we're back on our program, uh, Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, where we're discussing the results of a poll that we had circulated amongst our listenership uh, beginning yesterday. We got 170 responses, and as I had indicated before, the overwhelming uh, Areas of interest are the archaeology of ancient civilizations and the uh, matter of human origins and evolution, both topics of which are extremely exciting. They remain riveting for, uh, obviously, a tremendous number of people, and we will continue to explore these. And with respect to that, as I indicated earlier, some of our early programs dealt with the archaeology of ancient civilizations with respect to North America. We did a, a program on Cahokia or the uh, emergence of urban societies, if you will, or in the central Mississippi Valley uh, around 1000 A.D. And, of course, this was also a very systematic development. It's not that all of a sudden the, the cities emerged and um, they, they took hold. It was sort of a systematic development that was related to uh, awareness of the major role of navigable rivers and the advantages of settling in areas where one could grow food that eventually evolved into city-states and organizational networks that would allow people to form societies to trade and to engage in commerce and to develop nuclear family systems and uh, entire complexes of social organization. And the other area that we looked at in, in uh, I believe, our second show was uh, the Southwest, uh, specifically Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon, areas like that, where <clears throat> the, the entire question of water became such a pivotal issue that there is reasonably compelling evidence to indicate that the uh, decline of these cultures had a lot to do with uh, the changes in climate, which in the Southwest and in arid environments have a tremendous impact 
on the availability of water and the need to mobilize water and to change um, the engineering strategies that one would take part in to uh, make sure that the water was distributed evenly and that uh, central networks could in fact evolve. There's a tremendous research about that, that uh, the shifts and and diminishing amounts of rainfall are clearly linked to uh, stream systems and the availability of water and that these components contributed to uh, the decimation of populations and the abandonment of many of these locations. So that um, these are the two areas that we've explored so far. Obviously, uh, in the old world, uh, in Egypt, which most people are somewhat familiar with, certainly people who would be following this program, the Nile Valley was clearly the source of all life for the Egyptian uh, culture, uh, extending 5,000 plus years prior, uh, prior to the present. And uh, the Nile Valley was uh, next, well, it, probably even more so than the Mississippi Valley, um, such a huge source of subsistence resources that, that people were able to develop very complicated uh, social networks and commercial organizational modes and the flourishing of that uh, civilization is widely known. We're going to explore that in greater detail. The same with the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in uh, in Iraq and certainly the Indus River in uh, farther east in Pakistan and India and to the farther farther east the, uh, the Yellow River and the Yangtze in, in China and returning back to the New World, uh, certainly the drainages in, in Mesoamerica and in the Amazon Basin in, uh, in South America and Brazil, and also a series of networks of, of rivers and coastal plains uh, in Peru that allowed the uh, Inca civilization to, to flourish. Now, uh, one of our listeners uh, wrote uh, sort of a very, very intriguing question, which... Uh, which he brought to our attention. This is from Grant Wig, and uh, Grant is an old friend of mine, I might say parenthetically, from my years in, in Michigan about 30 years ago, and he writes that he is fascinated by the numbers and sophistication of the Native American cultures along the East Coast prior to the settlements by the pilgrims, where there are actually cities rivaling in numbers some of the larger set- centers in Europe. Well, this is a very, very complex question, and it is one that does have a series of answers. And um, I guess one of the reasons, one of the issues that we have to deal with is, is the tremendous amount of space separating uh, the environments between uh, the new world and and the old world, and and the strategies that were followed by the Europeans versus the strategies followed by the Native Americans mimicked each other in some ways. Clearly, the central role of water and the availability of, veg- of different types of foods and, and animals, faunal, floral and faunal resources, which formed the subsistence base for these people, those differed to some degree, even though there are some very, very strong similarities. And one can say, uh, without postulating that there was contact between these two continents, which I, I, I don't think uh, really one can uh, generalize to until our famous story of the Europeans getting here and, and, and the Columbus story, which uh, is not to be taken verbatim, but certainly has tremendous elements of truth that the Europeans discovered 
as they say, discovered America, which is not true, but the, the Europeans certainly came here. And uh, to some degree, there was a series of complex village structures and central complexes, uh, city complexes in place that uh, that the Europeans found. Now, the Europeans originally, if we if we think about the and the, the, the traditional story of, of Thanksgiving and the discovery of the East Coast, basically by the initial Europeans in the 17th century, uh, we can talk about Columbus certainly in the 15th century, but the larger incursions of Europeans. Uh, occurred in the 17th century, and that's when basically uh, North America was opened up by the Europeans, the Euro-Americans, and that's when the discoveries of these uh, huge village and urban complexes occurred. Uh, what the numbers of these villages were, well, it's hard to say, but I, I think we're starting to get certainly at Cahokia and some of the southwestern areas, such as uh, Mesa Verde and Chaco, as we talked about. We're looking at numbers that are on the order of 20,000 to 100,000 and greater, depending on the periods of fluorescence or the periods of maximum growth. Uh, it seems as if that period was uh, sort of coalesced for many of the North American centers at around 1000 A.D., which would put us basically a thousand years ago. And these cultures and societies flourished for a very long time, uh, well, for several hundred years, certainly. And they went through many permutations that are related to social organizations, as I indicated, also by climate changes, by the ability to make adjustments to the changing climates and to the changing vegetation types and, and resources, animal and vegetable vegetation resources that were utilized for foods by the settlers, by the, the Native American groups themselves. Now, as far as the Northeast is concerned, which is where we have the traditional Thanksgiving story and, and, and where people say, well, uh, again, it's it's imprinted on, on the minds of, of most people in, in North America that it all started with the pilgrims and the people. Puritans in, in, in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states, those uh, social organizations were, for lack of a, a, a better word, I would say, sort of to use the vernacular, they were quite, not quite really as sophisticated and elaborate as they were in the Midwest and in the Southwest. The reasons for this are probably very complicated. Uh, they are definitely very complicated, but geography had a tremendous amount to do with it. If you look at the primary artery that kept all these communities together, they were the large rivers. The Mississippi River is, of course, unrivaled in North America for its extent and for its lateral wealth and the ability of that river uh, to sustain a variety of different types of microenvironments, I mean swamps and uh, smaller river systems, all of which were networked together and created a vast mosaic of subsistence environments that allowed people to thrive, not just on the main stem of the drainage, but also along secondary, drain uh, secondary drainages as well, so that there were sophisticated um, population centers and social organizations and, and uh, city centers that were able to take advantage of, of this very, very complex geography. Geography and utilize it and maximize the yield of the resources for their purposes. That also occurred to the, in the Southwest to a, a lesser degree, I think, because um, the, the people who lived there uh, had to be even more aware of the scarcity of water because water was very, very dependent on climate and runoff and factors related to the, uh, to the flow, flow lines and the flow patterns of uh, 
of, of the drainages themselves. They practiced to a large degree irrigation agriculture. They practiced dry farming. And again, social organizations were probably a little more constricted by that and were more dependent on water. And finally, to the northeast, which is what we had talked about earlier and which the question is directed to, I think that the, uh, the, the, the density of geographic features and the tightness of the topography that breaks off into many, many smaller hills and valleys rather than a, a broader, more level topography had a lot to do with more isolation in the village structures and in, in, in the, uh, the evolution of more fragmented, if you will, urban centers that took root and, and had a more distinctive character of their own. Yes, of course, they were networked, but the nature of that work networking was probably a little more diverse and a little more spread out than it would have been in in uh, in the Midwest and and probably also in the Southwest. So uh, I think that there are complicated reasons for uh, understanding certainly the North American situation versus the European situation, which I haven't gotten into it at any point. And we will have a program about that. But Europe certainly had uh, a much tighter spacing of, of human groups. There's no question about that. And uh, there seem to be, again, a series of geographic boundaries and um, divisions that contributed to the formation of villages and uh, social organizations in Europe. Certainly, England developed its own unique um, social structure and, and uh, a set of urban centers primarily because it was an island and it was cut off to a, to a degree from, from the mainland in Europe whereas you'd find more commonality uh, say in areas like uh, Belgium and France and uh, parts of Western Europe than you would with England which sort of developed its own, it had its own demographics, it had its own linguistic groups and the social organization reflects the in many to, to a large degree the the geography that was very unique to an island setting so all these factors sort of play into this and i think we need to look into that in future programs we're going to again get into uh the emergence of civilizations and what it means for urbanism and the the growth of cultures and civilizations as we move on uh, in future programs, we'll uh, certainly take that on as a, a major challenge for for what we want to do with this program. We will get back to a number of other questions that have been up been brought up uh, by our listenership as a result of this uh, this poll. Uh, when we come back after these words. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. 
Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most, and by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in for encouraging and motivational stories every week on Minding Your Business, Living Life Beyond Invisible Barriers. Your host, Dr. David A. Blender, brings together guests from all walks of life who not only have found personal and professional success, but who are committed to help you achieve success. Each week and with each story, we strive to change the world a little bit at a time. Minding Your Business, Living Life Beyond Invisible Barriers is broadcast live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. This is Joe Schuldenrein uh, with the program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have been discussing the results of a poll that we put out yesterday to the listenership. We got a very, very extensive response. We, we got a viewer count of, a uh, listener count of 170 uh, responses. And uh, as I indicated earlier, there are a number of categories that these fall out into. Some of them are surprising, some are not. We have talked about the overwhelming interest in the archaeology of ancient civilizations and not follow, following not very far behind the interest in human origins and evolution. And with respect to that, uh, we have a very uh, provocative, for lack of a better word, uh, response from one of our listeners, uh, uh, Mr. Jeremy No, who writes the following I've always been fascinated with archaeology, especially the archaeology of Israel and other Bible lands. Being a believer in the Bible, I don't believe evolution is an actual process, and I feel that evolution should play no part in serious archaeology. One day, I'd love to volunteer on a dig for the great experience and knowledge that I'd gain. I'm not sure I know where to start with this, but I will give it a crack, and I will go back to our earliest episode, um, and I would uh, request and urge our listener, Mr. No, to, to listen to that one, in which we discuss the sort of the glamour element of archaeology and uh, one of sort of the side fields that most professionals sort of uh, are taken aback by and look a little bit askance at, and that is the quest for biblical items. There are folks who span the world and they look for, not the world, but basically the areas of the Bible, which of course is the Middle East and the Levant. And uh, for more classical civilizations, Greece and Italy. And they actually look for historic and biblical artifacts like Noah's Ark, like the Ark of the Covenant, 
like the chariots of the pharaohs, uh, presumably uh, remnants of the ones that that might have survived when the uh, the Red Sea parted. And there are people who do this, and there are actually a lot of people who are uh, relatively well-educated in various elements of this. I think the most common aspect that they have amongst each other is faith and the belief that there has to be evidence for uh, biblical um, realities, if you will, that there must be artifacts that attest to that. You've seen those shows on the History Channel and on National Geographic with certainly a more skeptical twist to it. But people do this. Um, I'm not sure that all of them will go as far as to say that um, that um, that evolution is not something that uh, that they can they can live with. But the fact of the matter is that there are folks who specialize in the archaeology of the Bible, and as we indicated in that um, first element, um, there are uh, there's a conflation of various aspects of the stories and the realities that the archaeological record will turn up. For example, the archaeological record will turn up artifacts that are consistent with the styles and the types that are registered in the Bible, pots and cooking elements that are very often described. Um, the temple, for example, in Jerusalem um, may certainly certainly has a correlate with the with the Wailing Wall that that has been uh, that is such a controversial area in Jerusalem. There's no question that uh, that the temple existed, but what, what the role of God was and and what the nature of of spiritual influence was is some, certainly something you're not going to document. You're not going to find Noah's Ark. There seems to be pretty good evidence for that. And of course, one of the major issues that that we all have to to deal with in these uh, arguments that that sort of put evolution versus creationism in the forefront is the fact that we have the scientific capability of determining the antiquity of many of these findings. In other words, there are a variety of techniques. Uh, ranging from what we call absolute dating to what's called relative dating that give us these chronologies and, and, and the actual history of these developments in, in, in a very, very classical and, and tight uh, sequence so that there can be no dispute about it unless um, you revert back to the argument, well, I just have faith, and then, of course, everything is possible. For, but uh, the advent of radiocarbon dating, which uh, allowed us to establish with clarity that items are X number of years old, is something that uh, most uh, people who believe in si the scientific method would, would say is uh, something that really is relatively indisputable. And then when you couple that with relative chronology, which is basically taking such things as pottery sequences and uh, establishing their order based on how they appear in the ground if they're buried by various deposits of successive um, younger um, cultures, then you can put these all in a row and you can develop a sequence for them. And when you find a common denominator for bringing them together for a date uh, based on even uh, biblical records 
or uh, records of the Egyptians or records of the Sumerian cultures that are written and codified, then you can place these findings in absolute sequence. When radiocarbon dating was invented in the 1950s, that was an extra piece to the puzzle that allowed you not only to utilize the texts and the archaeological record to put these sequences in order, but it actually allowed you to take a piece of carbon, a burnt piece of wood or of, uh, evidence of a fire, and you could date that, and it was no coincidence that when the, when the burnt piece of carbon was found together with this piece of pottery, that the pottery dates that had been previously dated by correlating with the text turned out to be within 100 or 200 years um, equivalent to the date that the radiocarbon record showed you. So that um, there was really incontrovertible evidence for this. Now, very often, and, and I won't get into this in any great detail, but there were discrepancies of 100 to 200 years, and there's no question that there is that. However, uh, in the past 30 years, there's something known as calibration effects, where there are factors that allow you to uh, sort of get an absolute age because there are atmospheric components that will artificially bring down dates or raise up dates, uh, and these can be accommodated by looking at the various factors that contribute to uh, a certain skewness in the data set. So we're allowed to do this. I mean, we're, we are, uh, excuse me, we are able to uh, put these records together in a very, very tight sequence. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, the, the Iron Age, the onset of the Iron Age, was equivalent to critical developments in, uh, in the Bible. Um, the times of, of Solomon and David are related to uh, the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age and uh, developments within the Iron Age uh, and subsequent. And these are related to industrial and technological advances that have a tremendous amount to do with social organization and to the patterning of human uh, groups across the landscape. So there's no coincidence, there's no coincidence that uh, here at all. These are related to cultural evolutionary patterns that are readily documented by a variety of different archaeological sequences and all bolstered by uh, biblical documents which represent a series of writings from different sources and that can be demonstrated by the various uh, styles that are utilized in, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls and linked to various accounts across the, uh, the, the Bible land so that the Egyptian record will in some degree <clears throat> mimic the, the biblical record, which to some degree will mimic the records that are in the Sumerian texts in Iraq. Of course, each particular culture will try to glorify its own, and so you have skewness and you have uh, bias in the way these, these tales are told. But nevertheless, many of the events described, the battles and the wars, those are in fact uh, I, uh, events that can be demonstrated to have occurred, whether or not you're going to find them uh, linked to uh, some kind of a spiritual 
uh, issue, like for for example, the, the tumbling of the walls of Jericho, that's that's something that you'll never be able to demonstrate. But you will be able to demonstrate that there were conflagrations at that particular location. Jericho, for example, is a very complicated archaeological site uh, that emerged uh, in a spring setting about uh, 10,000 years ago, and uh, archaeologists have been able to unravel the story of Jericho from the archaeological record in a way that could in some way be linked to the Bible, but not entirely. So we have to allow for bias in the telling of these stories. And for someone to say that, well, evolution plays no part in it, uh, if you he had indicated here that evolution has no part in serious archaeology, well, I would say that if you go to any, quote, serious archaeological excavation in the Holy Land or in the Bible Lands or in Egypt, you will find that the assumption of um, of evolution is built into the system, and if you want to go in there and and try to argue against that, uh, you're sort of up against it. So I would caution the reader that if he does want to go involved and get involved in an excavation, and he seems to be a perfectly uh, legitimate uh, and intrigued individual, that he will probably be in for somewhat of a surprise. And I guess you know we would certainly be interested in, in hearing his perspective, but I think that. In, in general, he would be sort of uh, considered to have an influence that is faith-based when there's nothing wrong with that. But confusing faith with science is, is certainly dangerous terrain to stomp on. And uh, just be aware that if you want to get involved in an excavation, I think you will find that most of the folks that are involved in this are scientifically oriented. And you sort of have an uphill battle if if you want to convince them Otherwise, but certainly, look, the cross-fertilization of mindsets is a wonderful thing, and uh, I would say get involved. See, see what kinds of excavations there are, and uh, keep your mind open. Archaeologists certainly have open minds and, and, and love to listen to all sorts of people and their theories. And who knows, you, you, you may be swayed or we may be swayed, and uh, there, there's certainly room for discussion here. Um, and on that note, we're going to take another break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, our next question after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America Business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. 
would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein. We're back uh, discussing the results of a poll that we had uh, set out in front of the listenership yesterday. And as I indicated, the topics of civil, uh, ancient civilization and human origins were the overwhelming source of interest for most of the list- listenership. We just uh, discussed a question on the, the long-brewing uh, creationism versus evolution discussion, especially vis-a-vis the, uh, the types of archaeology that's, that are related to the biblical lands. And I just uh, exchanged a couple of, of words with my very capable engineer, Brad, and, and I think we, we sort of both sort of agreed that at some point uh, the scientific arguments assume their position and faith-based arguments assume their position. And when faith is the issue, faith is the issue. If you believe in it and, and the faith does your soul good, well, by all means, that's, that's your baseline. And that, that's where you're going to go with it. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, scientists uh, probe uh, research in a, a different way. And uh, their interpretations are based on that. So I wish uh, the listener all the best. And I hope he does get an opportunity to go to a biblical excavation or a classical excavation. And again, uh, we are by no means trying to denigrate faith at all. It is something that has sustained people for a long time and will continue to do so. But again, cross-fertilization between minds is a wonderful thing, especially if they are on opposite sides of the spectrum and are willing to accept exchanges in a positive light. Moving on then to some other questions which are really kind of intriguing. In some cases, I'm not sure I know exactly where they're going, but I want to bring them in front of uh, the broader listenership. Liz Tidewell writes, Tired of ancient civilizations unless you take it on a new track and challenge the term civilization. It is such an oversubscribed subject. Forensic archaeology is fascinating and undersubscribed. The role in contemporary society would be great as we always need to make archaeology relevant to the general public. Archaeology is a career track. Ha! Good luck with that one. 
please don't sugarcoat it. People need to be aware of the reality of trying to work in archaeology today. I should probably stop now. Now, there's a number of very intriguing and overlapping points in this listener's comment, and they are very, very intriguing, and they are clearly indicative of a person who has thought about archaeology very, very seriously and has looked at the old versus the new applications of archaeology, the old and traditional, which we were talking about, clearly ancient civilizations. And what she's saying, I believe, is let's move beyond traditional concepts of civilizations and let's apply archaeology to different facets of uh, relevance in our contemporary world, and as I have done on a couple of programs, specifically the JPEG story, the... Uh, the program that we're going to do in Iraq about the forensic excavations for the Saddam Hussein trial, archaeology as a practice has a tremendous reach, and it doesn't apply necessarily to unraveling the mysteries of ancient civilization, but it gives us tremendous insights into uh, into contemporary catastrophes because the tools of the archaeologist are detective tools, and the same ones that are applied to unraveling the mysteries of the past are the ones that are applied to unraveling the mysteries of the present, especially with these quantum leaps in technolo technology and in mapping systems and our ability to uh, yield so much information from a minimum amount of data. Our, our capabilities of extracting information are huge right now. We can uh, generate interpretations from the very latest fields of science in forensics. Obviously, it's DNA, and it's also the study of uh, paleopathologies, or uh, pathologies rather, diseases, and we can re reconstruct mass murders on the basis of bone deformations and of uh, the remains within uh, large burial pits that give us clues as to how the sequence of events occurred that resulted in burials of individuals in particular places and at particular times. So these are uh, wonderful applications of archaeology, and I would emphasize that going forward in this profession, it is those types of venues that are going to provide employment for archaeologists going forward. Because uh, the traditional ways that we had done archaeology, and you look at the, uh, the old uh, textbooks in archaeology that uh, focused in many cases on the Middle East and the excavation of the great cities of the Middle East and uh, in Europe, the great cities of Europe, in London, in Paris, and, and uh, certainly in Greece and in Rome, those types of venues are becoming more difficult to uh, to work in because the cities themselves have infrastructures and infrastructures allow you only limited windows under which to perform excavations. So, uh, yes, we have better technologies right now that allow us to maximize our extraction of information from those limited windows into the substrate or into the ground. But by the same token, we will not be allowed to, to go into these wonderful cities which have been extremely overbuilt and simply dig them up. You can't do it because of the maze of utilities buried underneath the ground and the simple uh, business of being unable to stop progress by simple, be, in the interest of digging up the past. I mean, you won't cut off utility lines. You can't... Uh, uh, cut fiber optic cables. You can't do those things. So archaeologists are funded right now, as I indicated in, in previous shows, in a preservation environment <clears throat> that allow you to sort of maximize your yield, use uh, the most sophisticated non-invasive tools for doing the archaeology, and then using a limited 
set of strategies for doing invasive probing, but not certainly as much as you would want to do, certainly in these uh, urban environments that, that we've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about. The other point that this uh, this listener brought to our attention is working in archaeology, and she's correct. The career track for being an archaeology is incredibly, incredibly tedious, complicated, costly, and ultimately uh, will take you in a place that you hadn't anticipated being in. I mean, uh, most of us uh, who start out in this profession, certainly those of us who started out many years ago, wanted to be professors and instructors and museum personnel, and we wanted to work in those venues, which uh, really are, are very, very interesting, but nevertheless, the positions are limited. And the budgets, uh, if you have been following what's been going on over the past 20 years, the budgets for pure science are being curtailed so that the only way you're going to have opportunities to do this kind of work, and you will have opportunities to do this kind of work, is to expand your horizons and to understand that the preservation and conservation platforms are the ones that are going to allow you to do this work. And you will be able to do it. And you will be able to do it hand-in-hand with sophisticated technology technologies that are brought to bear on these particular projects and are being encouraged by funding, and not so much funding agencies, but preservation agencies by developers uh, in, 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 to a large degree across the world. That kind of development is being funded by the oil and gas industry, which is involved in exploration, and that's being done both onshore and offshore, so that the questions of, of early settlements of, of North America and across the continental shelves of all the continents are going to be enhanced by the fact that offshore drilling is going to allow the exploration of, uh, of underwater uh, uh, cultures and uh, I, I know Atlantis comes to mind, but certainly um, in North America, the, uh, the peopling of, of the Americas uh, at the end of what we call the Pleistocene is a, a challenge that will be answered by people that are doing geological and archaeological excavations off the continental shelf that will allow us to identify where the old shorelines were and uh, where the possibility, certainly, of finding archaeological sites is, is alive and well. We may not find the sites, but we will certainly identify the circumstances linked to the arrivals of the earliest people in North America and in other parts of the world. So on that note, um, I want to thank all of you who participated in the poll. I want to tell you very explicitly that we're going to take your recommendations and the results of this poll into uh, our highest regard, and we are going to start fashioning more shows that will address these issues, and uh, we look forward to presenting new shows as we go forward. And again, uh, I would like to emphasize our watchword um, that we will uh, that that uh, remember that your understanding of of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. I think that was more than emphasized in this particular program. And we will be back next week dis discussing uh, an aspect of archaeological exploration, again, in the streets of Manhattan, which is where I'm based. And we're going to talk about a very intriguing project that's going on right now, utilizing some of the higher tech equipment and the more imaginative approaches to doing archaeology in the urban environment. Until then, stay well and see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.